Bismillah wa salatu wa salam ala Rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum and good evening to everybody. Uh, my name is Asim Qureshi. I'm the research director of the advocacy group CAGE. Um, and it's my pleasure to be uh, hosting a conversation with um, two very good friends. Uh, first is Azadeh Moeveni, who is a journalist and the author of an absolutely brilliant book called Guest House for Young Widows, uh, which is about um, some of the women and um, children who uh, went to ISIS territory. And also with us is Fahad Ansari, who is an immigration lawyer who specializes in national security cases. And uh, importantly for this discussion, Fahad has uh, represented a number of people who have had their citizenships revoked from them. So I just wanna give a couple of words about the background to um, citizenship deprivation and why this conversation is important for us to think about because of course Shamima Begum's case is why we're here to talk about that but it sits in a, a much longer history of the way that citizenships have been removed so you know for those of us who are a bit more familiar with um, what took place in Guantanamo Bay you know we remember that um, in fact the first people in Europe to have their citizenships removed in this way were um, uh, Bosnian Muslims they were kind of foreign nationals who had fought most of them in the conflict had been granted citizenship rights um, for the service that they had done to uh, given to Bosnia. And uh, when the war on terror happened, almost immediately had their citizenships revoked at the request of the US government, um, were put on rendition flights and sent to Guantanamo Bay. There's a number of accounts of their story which are very, very important and worth, definitely worth going through. So we'll... Um, uh, well, I'll definitely recommend some of those books later. And but kind of, I think more crucially, you know, what we have to understand is that when in terms of the the state's relationship, particularly with its Muslim population, because we have to be honest here and, and say that it's predominantly Muslims. So far, there's only a case, one case of a non-Muslim who's been um, subjected to um, citizenship revocation. Um, that you know we have to understand in what context a lot of this emerged and you know a key part of that is the accountability process that took place of british nationals and residents who were held in guantanamo bay and who had been uh, subject to rendition and torture with the complicity of the british government one of the things that the british government was very keen on doing was ensuring that this never happened again that this kind of accountability didn't take place. And we really saw the manifestation of that. The torture and rendition of a young Somali man named Mahdi Hashi, uh, while he was being held in a uh, secret prison in Djibouti, the British government immediately revoked his citizenship. And so within a day of his detention, the citizenship revocation had taken place. And when uh, we were trying to help the family make representations to the foreign office, the foreign office said he's not a national of our country, and therefore we have an obligation to help him. We saw this again with the extrajudicial killing of Bilal Burjawi in Somalia, um, just prior to his um, killing by a drone strike, he had his citizenship revoked. Again, the British government claimed that they had no responsibility uh, for him. So what we saw was, citizenship revocation being used in proximity to activities of other foreign countries that were extrajudicial. And what that meant is that effectively the British government could wipe their hands clean 
um, of these people and claimed that it had no responsibility to them whatsoever. And so, of course, those are, you know, in some cases, some very difficult, extreme examples, but they're still instructive for us to, to remember and to think about as we have this conversation that this isn't just about Shumim and Begum. It's about how the British government has a relationship with its, um, you know, kind of citizens, and particularly with its Muslim citizens, um, in a way that, you know, constantly sees them as being potential threats and constantly sees them as way in, in ways that it can almost kind of wipe their hands clean off them. So that's just a kind of a quick background that I wanted to give um, to this to this conversation. As I introduced uh, Azade before, she's a, a journalist and the author of this uh, excellent book, Guest House for Young Widows, which really, you know, kind of charts the, the story of a number of young women and, you know, in, in some cases, children. And we should use that word explicitly because she was a child when she went to, uh, to Syria. Um, and, and really helps us to see and understand the complexity of their trajectories. So Azadeh, like, could you tell us a little bit about the typologies of, of these young women and children who were traveling and you know, kind of give us a sense for their motivations, just so that we have a bit of background and understanding about what was happening. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, and thank you so much, Awesome, um, for, for organizing this. Um, really pleased to, to be in, in conversation with you and, and with Fahad um, uh, about, about Shamima's case and, and also very much appreciated your kind of putting it in this, in this wider legal um, and political context and history. Um, I, I, I think the, the most important thing to say about the typologies um, and, and biographies uh, of, of the women who, who traveled or were groomed or recruited or mobilized to join ISIS is that they're extraordinarily varying. Um, they came from about uh, 60 different countries and, and the camps where Shamima uh, still is. Um, there are about 50 different nationalities of women still there. Um, I think what ISIS did very, very adeptly was that it spotted women as a potential social base and it, and it sort of recruited women and, and mobilized them uh, and, and sort of marketed itself to them um, very bespoke, you know, country to country. It was very good at identifying what women in that particular context were seeking, aspiring to uh, what their grievances were and it sort of pitched its its project, which was very specific to it, um, within you know the context of what would appeal to, to women in the UK, in France, in Belgium, in Tunisia. Um, I think uh, you know to to not go too expansively about it. I think you know the the story of ISIS in the Middle East and and the women who travelled from the countries, uh, the Arab countries of the Middle East, is is a, is a sort of specific one because. In countries like Tunisia um, or, or, you know, Morocco, other countries that were really, you know, women were very much um, recruited to ISIS in the aftermath. We have to view it in the sort of aftermath of the Arab Spring uprisings because ISIS came very quickly on the heels of the Arab Spring and it, and it appealed to what women had often been demanding and, and failed to be able to secure um, in, in many of those um, Arab Spring uprisings. Um, and because they came from such large numbers uh, in those countries, you know, very much often, you know, they were motivated by police repression, corruption, you know, demands that um, and grievances they, they had that had sort of brought them into the street to the first place. And when it was became impossible, it seemed to, to many, I think, that, that they could achieve those things um, in their 
in their national context, ISIS sort of appealed to them saying, well, come here, you know, everything that you failed to achieve in your uprising, you know, we're trying to build here. Um, in, in Europe uh, and in the West, I think it was, it was a different appeal, you know, and, and I think we have, uh, you know, the, the sort of social media archives of, of a lot of these young women, um, children in some cases who, who traveled. Um, there it was very much, um, I think, we see that they were motivated by by a host of things, many of them um, quite political, you know, a lot of the social media um, back and forth uh, and and the the uh, the women sort of recruiters for ISIS, um, you know, really emphasize issues like Islamophobic attacks, mistreatment of Guantanamo detainees, um, you know, the, the the terrible kind of civilian toll that, that, that the Assad government government um, and the Assad regime was imposing on Syrians. Um, and then also, you know, a whole sort of dialogue of empowerment, you know, sort of playing on the identity fractures and, um, and, and racism and, and kind of sense of, of alienation that young Muslims uh, in Europe were experiencing and continue to experience country to country, um, you know, promising them that if they sort of if, if they traveled to the caliphate they could bring their kind of third way islamic feminism there that they wouldn't be sexualized that they could wear the hijab freely uh, so we see a sort of real array of, of of motivations in in women's own kind of conversations with each other uh and and in the and in the kind of appeals of of the recruiters um i mean i, I think also of course though there's a real sort of element um, of, and you know, I think we can use the word grooming because I think in the cases of children, as you say, and, and Shamima certainly falls into that category, um, you know, very young girls, um, you know, of course, don't have the, the judgment and the maturity to be really making these decisions. Um, all of these kind of ideas were, were swirling uh, in their minds um, and they were being manipulated uh, very skillfully by uh, a sort of network of people who work together both online on these platforms and in their neighborhoods um, to to essentially um, you know to traffic them and I think you know we'll, we'll come to that perhaps you know a little bit later but you know the the reality is that when you know legally someone of this age uh, is recruited into uh, a move like this you know whatever um, kind of in, in their mind, the motivations might be, you know, and there is manipulation uh, as part of that process. You know, uh, we conventionally think of that uh, as trafficking, um, but but with this group of of young girls, um, that's not something that um, seems to have kind of come into any public assessment and certainly a sort of official assessment of of what has happened to them. They're kind of perpetrators um, of of their own of their own victimhood, really. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I mean, that's so fascinating to see the way in which um, agency is um, given or taken away from, from, you know, kind of especially people of colour um, to Muslims, depending on what the politically expedient thing is in that moment. Um, so, you know, in various discourses around kind of saving Muslim women from Muslim men, for example, they'll take some of that agency away. But with, you know, in other situations like this, they give, they grant them a lot of agency. So there's quite a, there's, I think there's an interesting aspect to all of this that I think is definitely worth thinking about in more detail. Just to just to reset the room a little bit um, for those who, who just joined, where I'm, I'm here with uh, Azadeh Moaveni, the author 
of Guest House for Young Widows, which looks at the experience of women who travel to ISIS territories, and with Fahad Ansari, uh, who is an immigration lawyer and who specialize, specializes in national security cases, in particular uh, cases where people have had their um, citizenship revoked. So we're here to talk about the Shamim Begum uh, judgment today a little bit, but I'm just getting uh, from both Azade and Fahad a sense of the background, um, both in, in terms of why women would go there, but also in terms of the legal process. I'm going to bring Fahad in now to ask him a little bit about um, the kind of the proceedings. So we've seen a shift within the UK from criminal law proceedings being issued against individuals for actual criminal acts they might have been involved with to these weird civil sanctions like citizenship deprivation. So could you tell us a little bit about how this revocation deprivation how it like sits within this legal regime bismillah um first of all um thank you austin for organizing this at very short notice um but really important to have this discussion uh tonight while people are still talking about the begum case i think one of the most frustrating uh, things for me uh, as a lawyer um, and as an activist when it comes to issues about deprivation of citizenship and the whole secret evidence that's involved in trying to appeal the decisions is that there's such a gap in knowledge between ordinary people and those who are working in the in the field and moreover even within the legal industry um, there's so many people who actually are unaware of the procedural irregularities uh, the lack of due process that's involved in SIAC. So when you have the nation discussing a case like Shamima Begum, it is a good opportunity to delve into the wider issues and see how far we've fallen as a nation which respects due process and the rule of law. Um, over the past 20 years, as most of us will be aware, there's been probably maybe 15 or 16 different pieces of counterterrorism legislation passed in this country, criminalizing everything from flying a flag to making a speech which could be seen as glorifying terrorism to booking a flight to somewhere like Turkey um, if it's deemed that that was an act of preparation for going into Syria. So a lot of it goes down to, to mindset and then what you know, what you have in your webs, on your on your devices, what kind of books you read. And that has resulted in, in, in dozens of prosecutions um, every year. Um, I'm sorry, considerably more than that. Now, you would think that with all of that legislation in your armory, that that is sufficient to prosecute, let's say, for example, someone like Shamima Begum, who the whole world believes to have gone to Syria. She has been on TV. She's known to have joined ISIS. Um, that there would be something there that you could prosecute her with. I mean, there must be something there, surely. When, when people are getting prosecuted for having um, YouTube videos or a flag in their possession, surely there's something you can prosecute, with her, prosecute her with. But what's the trend that seemed to be from particularly around 2000, 17 is that they have chosen instead to deprive people they suspect of being involved in terrorism of their citizenship. Now, if you look at the statistics, 
between 2010 and 2015, there was probably in total 36 deprivation orders uh, on the basis that it's not conducive to the public good for someone to have British citizenship. So 36 within that five-year period. Prior to 2010, it's, hard, it's hardly known. And then there's a spike, which you know coincides with the Arab Spring, in particular the uprising in Syria. Um, in 2017, there was 104 deprivation orders made uh, under Amber Rudd's watch. Now, the question you sort of ask yourself is, what happens? Why, if people are accused of some of the worst acts of criminality, such that it warrants removing their citizenship, then there must be some shred of evidence that you can prosecute them for in open court. Because even those who were convicted of terrorism in the UK um, and sentenced to, you know, 10, 15 years in prison, sometimes life, even those individuals come out without losing their citizenship at the end of it. So why are they afraid to prosecute these people in open court? In January 2019, Sajid Javid, the then Home Secretary, he even said that, um, oh, I think almost 400 um, individuals have returned uh, from Syria and we've assessed the majority of them and they don't pose a threat to national security. So there is a question as to why, why, why is the government choosing this form of, of measure rather than the ordinary rule of due process? Now, perhaps it's because in a normal criminal trial, you're accused of a crime, you provide your defence, you're shown the evidence, you're shown the evidence against you, you Hello, Fahad, have we lost you? You are essentially not really penalized until uh, the, the verdict. That's all flipped on its head when it comes to deprivation. Deprivation, you are penalized first. So, and, and you don't just get, you know, you don't, you don't get a five-year, 10-year sentence. You get a permanent you know, order, you are excluded, you are put into exile, you are stranded, um, in, in Shamima's case, in, in, a, in a squalid uh, detention camp, you know, which with the courts themselves are recognized are inhuman and degrading. And you're stuck there. Um, so you get your penalty, first of all, then you are given your, 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 your charges, which amounts to a, a single line in many cases that you are aligned to ISIS or you are aligned to a group that's aligned to Al-Qaeda. Um, and very often there's little more than that. And then you have to appeal against it. So the problem, is, uh, as, as we, can, we will discuss, is like obviously you're, you are stuck abroad. You're, you can't get back into the UK. Um, you might be in a detention camp. You might be in prison. You might be in, in, in a conflict zone. Um, you can't access your lawyers. So that's the beginning of the problem. But even when it comes to fighting the appeal, the appeal is conducted through this uh, tribunal called the Special Immigration Appeals Commission. And this is a, a special court set up to deal with national security cases. And unlike other criminal courts, in SIAC, um, the acronym for it, you 
the, the appellant is not shown the evidence against her. So apart from that line, um, when it comes to disclosure, you might get some, some, uh, an, uh, some documents. Most of it's going to be redacted, blacked out. You don't, you're not given this particulars of what you're, you're, you're supposed to have done, apart from the generalities that you were aligned with uh, such and such a terrorist group. But apart from that, you're not, you're not given any particulars of what evidence they have. So how do you deal with that? Um, how can you challenge uh, a case? How can you defend yourself against evidence you don't know what's, what it is and they're not showing you it? You might say, well, you'll get your lawyers. They're the ones who will access it. But in SIAC, the lawyers, we're not allowed to see the evidence either. So the way the government has got around this is they've legislated for um, barristers called special advocates. So these are security vetted barristers who were appointed by the government to represent the client's interests in these secret proceedings. So the inside you'll have the open proceedings where we're allowed to go in and the closed proceedings where they really go to the heart of the case, what, what the evidence is. And these special advocates will represent the client's interests in there. Now, just to make things that bit more difficult, once the special advocates see the secret evidence, at that point, they're not allowed to uh, communicate with uh, the, the appellant or with the client or with, uh, with the lawyers, the open lawyers. So, for example, they will go in, they'll see, okay, there's such and such, they're saying there's a, a witness um, who claims that he or she saw you at a certain place holding, um, I don't know, a, a knife or a gun or there's a photograph which they claim is you in Kandahar or whatever. And there's no way they can then come to you and say, well, look, this is what they're saying. Do you have an explanation? You might very well have an explanation for that, but that's it. You, you, you don't get to argue it. So what, it, what clients then have to do, and I, I find this really um, difficult, is if we do eventually try to meet a client and we end up flying out to another part of the world, and we're meeting someone for the very first time, and then they have to explain to us their entire life story. And we have to probe every aspect of their contacts, their travels, their political beliefs, their religious beliefs, in the hope that we cover all the angles that when the special advocate goes in with that material, he can then, um, if, if whatever we suspect might be enclosed comes up, he has the material to rebut it. But it's very invasive, it's very intrusive. And for someone meeting for the first time in these circumstances, it's, 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 it's very unfair, uh, to put it quite simply. So that essentially is, is, is the procedure. So for, if, if you can imagine from the Secretary of State's position, the government's position, it's far easier to do this than to bring someone back and prosecute them and bring evidence against them that they might actually be able to defend themselves against. Um, so... You asked me what, how we've got to this stage um, and what the civil sanctions are. So this is, this is their, their favorite civil sanction. They have a couple of others like temporary exclusion orders and uh, TPIMS, uh, Terrorism Preventative Investigative Measures. So again, these are uh, sanctions that are imposed on you and you are punished initially uh, with certain measures, restrictions on how you can behave, where you can live, who you can meet. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it, it's penal penalized you first and you can just try to challenge it afterwards. But it's, it's okay. completely flipped the system on its head. Yeah, thank you. That's a really useful um, kind of explanation of, of the system and the structure that um, 
these individuals have to really face in order to get their rights. So let's, you know, now that you've both given us a good overview of um, the topic, why don't we focus specifically on Shamima's case in particular for the next 20 minutes or so? And then what I'm hoping for, uh, after I ask the next two or three questions, we can uh, open the discussion up for others who maybe have uh, questions or comments to our panelists. And just to remind you, we have Azadi Moaveni, who is the author of Guest House for Young Widows, which is an excellent book on the story of uh, young women and children who travelled to ISIS territories. And we have Fahad Ansari, who is a, an immigration lawyer who specialises in national security cases. So Azadi, um, you know, Shereen Wigan's case, it, it feels particularly egregious for a number of reasons, you know, chief of which was the fact that, you know, she was a child um, who was groomed into going to ISIS territory. Um, but it would be really useful if you could please give us um, a bit of a background to her case and, you know, how eventually she ended up at this, in this refugee camp so far. From- um, sure. Um, so, so Shanima, uh, of course, was one of the, the three Bethnal Green girls that, that we all remember sort of were catapulted into international headlines and front pages um, in February of 2015 when they, when they left home, um, when they left their families in East London and traveled to Syria. Um, Shamima was, by, by all accounts, um, the, the sort of most quiet, the least, um, the most passive uh, of the group. She was, um, she was uh, the, the one that was sort of, you know, followed the others. Um, I think what makes her, her case and what's happened to her um, to, to me, uh, the, the most distressing aspect of it is the incredible, um, you know, we can call it safeguarding uh, failures or, or negligence um, in, in the lead up to her leaving. Um, so this group of girls uh, in East London um, had a friend who was really the ringleader, who was the first one who had um, made contact um, with ISIS recruiters. Um, the most prominent female ISIS recruiter operating online was in touch with all of these girls, including Shamima. Um, and we certainly know that counterterrorism police were following those communications. So that girl went in December of 2014. And so the communications of these girls was being monitored by police. Police went and met with them at Bethel Green Academy, um, but there was mysteriously no contact made with any of these parents. So the parents had no chance to uh, ask the girls why they were suddenly on their phones the whole time. Um, they didn't know to be on the, on the alert um, for, for what was going on in their lives. Um, they noticed that they were withdrawn. They noticed that they weren't acting like themselves, uh, but they didn't know why uh, and weren't, weren't given the chance to really look after them, even though they were so, so terribly castigated by the media immediately in the, in the aftermath of, of their leaving for, you know, how could you not have known, you know, backwards immigrant parents, you know, don't even know what's going on with your own children. Um, and, you know, those of you who followed some of this back then will recall, um, you know, the Met Police, it was a major scandal. They had to apologize to the families. There was a select committee, um, Home Office, uh, Home Affairs Select Committee hearing on, on what had gone wrong. There was, you know, it was a massive uh, failure of intelligence or, you know, some in the, in the community started to think that the girls had been allowed to go so that their, um, so that their sort of trail of, of um, sort of communication and who was handing them over could be observed and studied for intelligence purposes. Um, so, you know, in, in her life, um, you know, Shamima was studying for her GCSEs. She was, she liked television. She was 
brainwashed um, by these by these recruiters um, who had uh, gotten access to her. And she left with, with the other two girls, uh, with Amira Abbas uh, and, and Khadija Sultana in, in February. Um, and right afterwards, um, you know, once the, the sort of scandal of how the police uh, and the safeguarding failures unfolded, you know, of course, there was a promise by the police that, you know, if the girls come back and there was a whole campaign you know, for them to come back, that they, you know, there was a promise that they wouldn't be prosecuted. But, but by that time, uh, they were already there. Um, and, um, and one of them uh, wanted to come back uh, after a few months had elapsed. But um, she was the one, um, actually, who died in an airstrike in her, you know, her apartment building in Raqqa was, was hit before she had a chance to be able to make it out. So Shamima married uh, and had children, as we know. Um, two of her children, um, two of her children died. She was part of the the kind of last stronghold of ISIS um, that that fell in early 2019 in Baghouz. So that was the very last sort of bit of territory that the ISIS was holding. Um, and she and, and thousands of, of others sort of streamed out, um, you know, living under trees, sleeping under trees, eating roots uh, for days until they um, were captured by the Syrian Democratic Forces and were transported into a camp uh, called al Hol, which was really um, been around for years. It originally uh, housed refugees from the very, very first uh, Iraq war. Um, and it was in al Hol, uh, you know, where she was found, uh, found, um, you know, uh, pregnant at that point by the journalist Anthony Lloyd of the Times. Um, and then there began, you know, the, the, the extraordinary sort of, you know, what I think of as the prosecution of Shamima by media, whereby all of these journalists for uh, newspapers like, like the Times and the Daily Mail um, had, uh, had access to her. They sort of interrogated her. Um, I would say, you know, with, with no thought to any of the trauma that she had experienced, with no thought to uh, her age and youth at the time that she had been groomed and recruited. Um, and she was sort of allowed to, to hang herself. You know, she said, she said terrible things um, in these interviews and they made headlines and she was sort of portrayed as, you know, this ghastly um, woman who, who, you know, abided by the group's ideology. Um, you know, she gave she gave birth. Her child died. Um, but but by that point, you know, public sentiment was so uh, riled up against her. You know, this incredible sort of vitriol um, and you know a lot of hatred, sort of whipped up uh, racial sort of hatred. It was a very racialized, I think, uh, depiction of of Shamima. Um, that that essentially, um, you know, I think her first prosecution was was by media, um, and I think that the. The papers and the journalists, um, you know, including ITV, including the BBC, who went into that camp and did those interviews with her, I think, you know, were, were terribly uh, unethical. Um, so everything that's come next, you know, the, the actual legal process, I think, um, you know, to my mind, uh, is, is politics, um, you know, and, and the, the decision to strip her or deprive her of her citizenship, um, you know, is purely a, a political one. Um, you know, knowing her background, the age that she was recruited, the idea that, um, you know, that she could pose a, a, a security risk, um, you know, is, is just you know, utterly disingenuous. Um, you know, maybe we'll talk about this this later, but, you know, also just worth noting very quickly um, that, you know, dozens of women uh, from the UK have come back already. Um, 
and and so Shamima, you know, already there are there are existing um, you know law enforcement measures to to mitigate any kind of risks that might be posed by by some of these women and girls who've come back. Um, and 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 also very quickly because I know you just simply asked me to give me uh, to give the the sort of background to to Shimima herself. No, it's it's fine. Please please uh, carry on. Honestly, I'm I'm actually um, really uh, interested in what you're saying. You know because. <laughs> She has been treated so differently, so I would like to know more about that, please. Um, so, so yes, so I mean, this idea that you know she's a security threat, I think, is if she's a security threat, then what you know these dozens of women who've come back under the radar are, or come back known to authorities and who haven't been prosecuted, um, well, then surely we're a terrible risk, um, you know, because of their return. But that's not deemed the case, um, you know. I think. I think non-political officials, you know, the former uh, director of MI6, you know, Richard Barrett, I think has said very clearly that it's actually more dangerous to leave people in these camps that are so unstable because then they can, you know, some who, um, you know, actually might be dangerous uh, could, could come back um, under the radar. Um, uh, and very quickly on this question of uh, prosecutability, you know, I think we've seen so many European countries uh, very um, original and and um, adept at finding ways to prosecute women for whom there is perhaps no evidence of, of of wrongdoing, but there's a there's a you know a belief that there must be some prosecution in order to make the public accept. The, the repatriation uh, and the return. So the idea that there's no options is also is also simply not factual. Um, you know, in Germany, for example, I thought this was quite interesting. Um, Germany has invoked this this archaic law um, or this archaic crime of pillage, which sounds really medieval, uh, but they've prosecuted uh, German women who've come back from Syria for the crime of pillage because they went and took up residence in these homes of Syrians who had fled the country in these villas and these cities like Raqqa and, 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 and other. Um, and so they prosecuted them you know, on the basis of occupying someone's home um, under the, the category of pillage. So you see that, you know, actually these legal systems can be very adept at, at prosecution and creative in finding ways uh, to, to prosecute for the sake, um, you know, for the importance of, you know, for, for, for a host of reasons, but, th but that it's possible. Um, and that, you know, that the, there could be no, the wherewithal could not be mustered up to do this uh, for, for Shamima, who was one of the youngest children who were groomed and trafficked. I think it's just extraordinary, especially in the context of, um, of the lapses in her case, you know, the police failing to tell her sister that her best friend had joined ISIS. You know, all of this is, you know, is I think makes um, her her deprivation, um, you know, all the more um, just profoundly, you know, immoral and, and legal, you know, travesty. Thank you. That's that's such a um, you know, it was really fascinating account of obviously the trajectory that she's been through um, to get to the moment that she's in right now. Um, Fahad, could you do something similar, please, but specifically around the legal challenges that have been launched in Shamim's case? So, you know, her citizenship is revoked and then now she has to go through an entire system to get um, to where she is right now. I mean, you already you know, kindly took us through the general system of citizenship revocation and, and the SIAC proceedings. But what were the specific challenges in, in her particular case? 
Um, firstly, uh, just wanted to touch on what um, Azadi said about um, Germany using medieval legislation to try to prosecute and to use pillage. Well, the Brits have been using medieval uh, policies through the deprivation policy. It's called exile. Um, and so it, they have, they had enough far behind the Germans, albeit to punish their citizens, not to benefit them. The tragedy of Shamima's case is that her, uh, her, everything about her case is politicized. Um, if you look at Sajid Javid, who is the Home Secretary, who deprived Shamima, when he came into office within months, in June 2018, he wrote a counter-terrorism strategy document in which he specifically put in an example of a British woman wanting to come back from ISIS territory with a baby. And the strategy involves things like DNA testing the baby, applying for a temporary exclusion order to control and manage the return back, investigating the moment return to see if she's committed any criminal offences, enrolling her in a de-radicalization program and then involving social services for the baby. Um, and it seemed that they had this more enlightened approach to dealing with the problem. But then, of course, in January 2019, uh, February 2019, there's this leadership election going on. And up to that point, I don't have the statistics to prove what I'm saying at the moment, but I'm sure when they're released, they will support it, that until that point, Sajid Javid, I believe, did not deprive anyone of their citizenship because he was following through the strategy that he had written up when he became Home Secretary. So then heavily pregnant, 19-year-old Shamima Begin turns up in February 2019 in a refugee camp with ISIS now completely decimated. Um, and there appears to be the strategy to literally take him from his, his, his text to bring her back to the UK safely. But all of a sudden, within one week, the security services assessed that this young lady, traumatised, has lost two children, she now poses such a threat to our national security that we have to take away her citizenship. In 2017, when Amber Rudd deprived over 100 people of their citizenship, and that was the height of ISIS, and they were fully aware that Shamima was in ISIS territory at that time. Never did they even think about taking away her citizenship at that point. But suddenly now she's a threat. So, you know, it is very, very politicized. Now, one of the, the things that's really key in this case, and um, this is something that's come up again and again, is under international law, you can take away someone's citizenship if the effect of that is to make them by law stateless. I mean, they've no other nationality. So the government has got around this with Shamima and, and others by saying, well, although they're born in the UK, they're raised in the UK, they've born British, raised British, they've lived their entire lives here. Um, her mom and dad are from Bangladesh. So by technically, she also has Bangladeshi citizenship by heritage. So we can take away her citizenship and she's not our problem anymore. She's Bangladesh's. Um, and you can see the problems with that already. They've done this with Pakistani nationals, with Bangladeshi nationals. Um, they have been unable to do it with certain countries who don't allow dual citizenship. But in Shamima's case, unfortunately, when, when the, they announced this, the Bangladeshi said, well, you know, she's not one of ours. And if she comes back here, we're going to execute her. Still, the British government doesn't take responsibility for it. And what this essentially leads to then is you've got this twin track system of justice where if you were a white British citizen of Anglo-Saxon 
uh, ethnicity and your parents are the same, they can't take away your citizenship, no matter what you do. But if you are brown or black with brown or black heritage from other countries, they essentially can. So two people could be accused of the same thing, but only the, the, the foreign looking one, the one that doesn't look like everybody else, they could be deprived of their citizenship. So you never really, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a sense of telling you that uh, you don't belong. You've never belonged. That's why you don't deserve the citizenship. It's only temporary for you. It doesn't matter how long you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter that you were born there. It's irrelevant because it's only a temporary provision. It's, it's, it's a status we have privileged you with, and we will take it away when it serves our purposes. So what, what she did was yield the decision to Sayak. And the very first ground that they look at was whether she was stateless or not. And although it's going to get a bit technical here, but trying to avoid too much technicalities, there's a difference between being stateless as a matter of law and being stateless as a matter of your circumstances. So Shamima is stateless in terms of her circumstances. No one's taking responsibility for her. She's got no protection of any state. She is stateless. But by law, under the Bangladeshi nationality law, she does have Bangladeshi citizenship. She's entitled to it. So um, she lost on that point in, in Sayak. Sorry, can, well, I, can I clarify that? Yeah. Are you saying that being entitled to the citizenship is akin to the citizenship itself? Uh, no, um, she is. She, she is. Sorry, I, I'll rephrase that. She is a citizen uh, under Bangladeshi law. She doesn't have to make any application for it. She's automatically a citizen because her mom and dad were citizens. So um, if she had an entitlement and she would then have to make an application, then she's not a citizen until she the application is received and processed and granted. So in her case, she is um, a citizen already, according to Bangladeshi law. Um, but again, these are these technical points. You're, you're, this is, you know, this, she, this girl is British. She's, she's not, she's not Bangladeshi um, any more than I'm Bangladeshi. So, in Sayak, they disagreed um, and they said, no, she is, uh, she's basically um, a Bangladeshi citizen, so she's not stateless. Now, her lawyers never actually appealed the substantive issue about um, what she's done. That that hasn't been decided yet. What they said was, uh, he cannot fairly uh, participate in these proceedings. So I've already discussed the difficulties in participating in SIAC. Now, in Shamima's case, it's even worse. She can't communicate with her lawyers properly. She can't uh, you know, give a statement, can't give evidence. She's in a detention camp in squalid conditions. And so they applied for her to be allowed to come to the UK uh, to participate in her case, in her appeal. So that was refused by uh, the High Court and by SIAC. Um, and then last year, the Court of Appeal said that she didn't have a right, she couldn't get a fair hearing this way, um, and that that trumped the the national security issue, that although the security measure threat could be there, that could be managed using alternative measures, as we've discussed, and that the risk to her was too great, and the only way she could have access to justice was to be allowed to come back to the UK. A very sensible decision by the Court of Appeal. Um, what the Supreme Court uh decided i don't know do you want me to go into the judgment um today's judgment well i i mean that's what i was gonna uh, ask you both about just to give your your quick 
kind of thoughts and reactions to what what meaning we can take from the judgment. And just to just to you know say to everybody else that I I will be opening the floor for questions to our panelists again. Just quickly to say that um, we have Azade Moaveni, the the author of Guest House for Young Widows. Um, she her book uh, charts of of young women who travel to ISIS terror. It's a, it's a really fantastic. I definitely recommend all of you um, buy it and read it. And also who is an immigration lawyer who specializes in national security cases. So yeah, Fahad and Azadeh, I'd like to know kind of what your your immediate reactions were to, to today's judgment and what that means for us all. Well, uh, I mean, I'll just finish off and then Azadeh can, uh, can um, pipe in. But I, this judgment is is really shocking. I mean, it's really hit the legal industry quite, the legal sector quite badly. I mean, everyone is a bit taken aback by what was, seemed to be quite a... Um, sympathetic Supreme Court in previous years has suddenly become very, very pro-government in its approach in this particular judgment. And the fact that they severely reprimand the Court of Appeal judges below them to the point that they said that they didn't give the Home Secretary's assessment the respect which it should have been, which it should have received given that it's the Home Secretary has been charged by Parliament with responsibility for making such assessments. Um, the language was so derogatory towards the Court of Appeal judges. Um, and they essentially said that when it comes to national security, it's not up to us to second-guess the Home Secretary or the security services. Now, we've see, I've already explained how difficult it is to, to win a case in SIAC. But now you're having the Supreme Court, the, the, you know, the most senior judges in the land telling you, and in a unanimous decision, that when it comes to national security, it doesn't really matter. It's what the Home Secretary says. You have to give sufficient weight to that because that's what Parliament is entrusted with keeping us safe. And that just beggars belief because the courts are the ones, the judiciary, are the ones who are meant to hold the executive account. They're the ones who are meant to uh, in this, you know, the famous doctrine of the separation of powers, they're the ones who are meant to stop the state from ex exceeding its bounds. I mean, we know uh, how faulty British intelligence can be. Um, we're still suffering the consequences of that faulty intelligence 20 years on. But now we're being told, well, just trust them. And that's a shocking thing for me because this isn't SIAC saying it, this is the Supreme Court saying it. So that's, uh, it, it's, I'll, I, I, of course, her lawyers um, will decide what to do next and possibly bring an application to the European Court of Human Rights. But for everybody else who is going to be affected by deprivation orders moving forward, this is a really devastating judgment. Thank you. Azadeh, please. Um, I'll, I'll uh, try and quickly um, just point out the things that I find um, kind of uh, most disturbing <laughs> about it. Um, you know, just to echo Fahid, I mean, I think legally it's, um, you know, it's, a, I don't know, can we say it's legally abusive? Is it abusive to the law? Um, it's it's such a political, uh, yes. Yes, you know, you <laughs> it's such a, you know, overtly political judgment, you know, and, and such a heavy handed one, you know, overriding, um, you know, a, a court that's made, you know, a fundamental right, the right to appeal a sentence, um, you know, to sort of discard that, um, you know, uh, on this token notion that this, you know, uh, 
not that it's a token notion, but the idea that this girl who was recruited at 15, who's still, you know, a teenager could, could be a threat. Um, so, so I think from a sort of justice legality perspective, um, it, it bodes very poorly. Um, uh, the, the second thing is, you know, of course, it has implications for these other 15 to 20 British families uh, who, who are there. Um, you know, it, I'm sure that then it will sort of set the precedent for, for their you know, cases uh, and situation. Um, I think the UK has has really led a very hardline Commonwealth position on returnees. You know, Canada has been abysmal. Australia has been abysmal. Um, and I think the UK has really led the way on that. So I think it's, you know, not just this cohort of Brits, but, you know, uh, several other families of, of other Commonwealth countries, um, I think we'll, we'll see that this hard line um, that the UK is taking will, you know, uh, have implications for, for others as well. Um, and then I suppose lastly, you know, I mean, this is, this is kind of sort of sits adjacent to this, but, you know, I think, um, you know, to me, it's concerning about, you know, the government the, the highly polarized relationship um, of this particular government with with minorities uh, in, in this country, you know, especially in in the kind of context of the pandemic and the kind of breaches of trust. Um, also, you know, in the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter, I mean, it's such a deeply polarized time. Um, and, and we see the sort of the public health uh, repercussions of that and, and the injustices of, of the of the economic inequalities um, that kind of are the backdrop um, to, to that poor relationship. So I think also, you know, kind of looking ahead and looking at how so many other communities who will see themselves, um, you know, see their potential fates, you know, uh, in this region is, is also concerning. Um, so, um, you know, yeah, uh, many things, both kind of, uh, you know, immediate to, to us, um, but also to all those other families of all those other countries in that camp, I think, um, will will be implicated by this. Thank you so much. Both. Awesome. Yes, go ahead. Mm -hmm. So just, just to, before you open the floor, um, it's worth pointing out that it's a severe indictment of Britain's counterterrorism industry with all the, the counter-extremism experts to prevent uh, duty, social services, reams and reams of counterterrorism legislation, that they feel they only manage Shamima Begum, this 19, 20-year-old traumatized child, is to keep her out of the UK, that they can't actually, there's nothing to manage someone like that in the UK with everything we have. We cannot manage her because she's, she's so dangerous. She's a threat to like 60 million people. Uh, it, it's phenomenal. When you actually break it down, that's essentially what the highest court in the land told us today. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I'm going to start letting people in now to um, to ask questions. But, you know, I think this is one of my key reflections on this whole thing as well, which is what makes her less dangerous for Bangladesh or anywhere else for that matter? And, you know, that that to me feels, you know, so important, all of this, that, you know, for some for some reason, you know, she's OK to go to Bangladesh, but nowhere else. And this lack of awareness of how they racialize almost every single aspect of the way that they treat her is is something that you know I still really can't can't get my head around but I do want to um, give some time to others so I'm going to stop there and first invite um, Sarah to come in hi everyone hi there 
Um, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for doing this and for all the work you've done. I've been a follower of all three of you for a really long time now. Um, and it's really inspired a lot of the work that I do. I'm a PhD student at St. Andrews. Um, and my research is looking at how the UK and and medias are complicit in racializing uh, the women who left to join ISIS. Um, and I think that this is something that I feel has been really left out from the picture, which is how they have worked in tandem to, to really villainize women like Shamima Begum and to allow them to, to allow the, the government to make decisions like these. Um, and so that's something that's just, it, it, it's like they, they don't exist in vacuums from one another. And then also of national security kind of as an excuse by the government to do everything. Um, I'm from Egypt and this is something that we've seen constantly where it's this this abuses of human rights on, an, on a regular occurrence in the name of national security um, especially for a government with something like the hostile environment. It's just I, I feel so frustrated the more I, I do this and I just to ask you kind of this is a bit of a of a I guess a personal question, but it's also just like at what point do you just kind of say there's no fixing this, right? At what point do you just say this is this is a government that's decided to go down this path and it just feels like pointless to even continue talking. I don't know if this is depressing, but it's just something that like as I find quite tough. Um, um, sure, sure. Okay, let me have a crack at that. Jazakallah um, for your comment. Um, yeah, I, I, to be honest, today I felt a bit like that when I read the Supreme Court judgment. Uh, I mean, at what point now that the judiciary is also sort of siding with the government in this way so openly, what do you do? Um, but the reality is, is that unless you, 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 a point will come when, when things will have to change. Uh, we, Considering how bad things are here, we still, I mean, you said you're from Egypt. We're not, we're not at that stage yet, um, as things are in Egypt. I don't think you could compare the two so significantly, but even closer to home, we still have it better than France um, and other countries on the continent. Uh, we've got it better than China, but things are going in that direction. And unless we put a stop on it, it will eventually, that's a, that's a natural trajectory it will go along. Um, it has been worse in other places, and they have managed to actually change things over time. It's taken, when you look back on struggles, political struggles of different oppressed communities in other parts of the world, in a timeline, it looks like um, a blip, you know, 20, 30 years. But for those people who lived through those 20, 30 years, every year was a struggle. But looking back on it, it's just a timeline that between this, these decades, these people were, uh, have suffered this, you know, significantly, but they did have to work to reclaim their rights. And I don't think giving up is an option. I think we, we have to keep, keep the fight alive until, uh, until we, um, whether we see that victory or not, I think we, it's our duty to keep trying to protect our communities. Um, I'll just uh, come in really um, yeah, thank you so much for um, for listening in your question um, and really uh, and also your research that you're doing. Um, and, and I was intending to mention this, um, and I think it fits in with what you're doing. Um, before Emma Barnett joined uh, 
uh, BBC Women's Hour uh, and did that really deplorable interview with um, with the new uh, woman head of the Muslim Council of Britain. Um, I was on Radio 5 Live with her um, to, to talk about my book, and I had a really absolutely terrible experience because um, I was trying to make the case that uh, that Shamima's race factored into the public's refusal uh, to, uh, and, and some of the media treatment of her to to allow her to recognize that as a 15 year old who had been groomed into child marriage, essentially, that she was a victim, that if her name was, you know, Camilla or something else, that if she was white, she would be looked at with more sympathy. And she was so hostile to this possibility, not curious about it, not interested. Um, and so I think that kind of strain, uh, that attitude that, that really permeates a lot of the journalism that has shaped public sentiment around this, that then government can point to and say, well, the public are scared, the public are outraged. You know, I think it's very much, um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a dance that, 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 that happens together. And I think the focus on the media is, is crucial. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, being discouraged, um, you know, uh, I was discouraged today um, until Awesome said, you know, let's have this conversation. I thought I would be really happy to to gather with, you know, some perhaps like-minded people and have a discussion and, and, and not be um, kind of uh, dealt with in, in, the, in the normal media manner. Um, so I think the one thing um, that to me is encouraging, you know, the UK really... Uh, seeks to be uh, and acts as a thought leader on on these issues globally you know it's, it it takes the lead on women peace and security and it and it you know and it spends money and directs policy on reintegration of women from militant groups in all sorts of places all over the world um you know it it presses the nigerian government to take back women who voluntarily joined Boko Haram in Nigeria. Um, you know, it sets up programs to do that. So, you know, if it wants to have this counterterrorism role on the world stage, um, then it really undermines its own credibility, uh, not doing what it preaches to other countries at home. And absolutely awesome. Why should uh, Bangladesh, um, you know, be, be in, in any different position? You know, why should the security concerns be less for them? Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, only uh, hope in that, um, you know, I, I think that there are there are ways and angles to sort of, um, you know, to hold these decisions to, to some kind of a different kind of account. Thank you both so much. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Okay. All right. So now I'm going to invite Kaz. Hi there. Hi, thank you for bringing me up. Um, it was really amazing listening to both of you, or all of you, um, especially seeing as you have, like, um, you know, you're basically experts in this field. Um, I had a couple questions. Um, one of them is, so I read the judgment, and I know one of the reasons that the Supreme Court said that, um, that sorry, um, one of the reasons the Supreme Court gave was that she couldn't rely on anything other than um, the, the ground that this was against Section 6 of the Human, Human Rights Act, um, as in that a public official had acted unlawfully or against the European Convention of Human Rights. Um, I just wondered why her lawyers didn't use that argument. I guess that's something that I can't really comment on because I didn't represent her. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know why it wasn't mentioned. I'm sure they had their reasons for doing so. Um, but yeah, I don't know why it wasn't mentioned. 
I want I want to come in here and actually just ask a, a wider question about the law uh, to you, Fahad, because you know I remember uh, A and others very well. And for those of you who don't know, A and others was a case uh, that came up in the UK courts because immediately after 9-11, 19 Arab men were arrested and they were placed in indefinite detention without charge, without any kind of process whatsoever. Now, um, eventually their their case went through various um, different legal steps until it got to the final court into the House of Lords. And the House of Lords effectively, which was the highest court in the land before it got replaced by the Supreme Court, the House of Lords said that you cannot have a law that treats one set of people differently than another set. Like, you, you, it's just not possible for you to have a law that that would discriminate in this way. And yet, we, in this circumstance, we clearly do have a law that patently discriminates against um, anyone who's not so-called indigenous to this country. Um, how is that not a, a legal challenge that has already happened? Um, we, it, it's an interesting question. And they will say generally immigration and nationality law um, does discriminate on the basis of uh, nationality. Um, the argument I guess you're making is this is on the basis of ethnicity. It's something that we wanted to push through in another case uh, last year. And probably four weeks after we lodged that particular ground during those proceedings, um, Jack Letts was deprived of his citizenship. I, I hate to think that we had anything to do with Sajid Javid making another... I do have this inkling at the back of my head that it triggered something like that. So we had to withdraw that. Well, we didn't withdraw it, but we, we lost on that ground that it was a discriminatory application for obvious reasons because Sayak said, well, you know. So it's, it's an equal policy. Um, so yeah, uh, if, if that answers your question, that it, it, it was attempted, and uh, it's not, that's not to say that it's, we've given up on that ground completely. It just needs a, the correct case to bring it up again. Okay, interesting. Sorry, Azadi, I don't know if you had any uh, response to Kaz's question and before we bring somebody else in. Um, could I ask a, one, another question? Sure, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Um, no, no worries. Um, so I know uh, Fahad you was saying that, um, you know, she wasn't actually deemed this like massive national security threat back in 2017 um, when other people were being deprived of their citizenships. Um, and then obviously suddenly that this was changed. Um, I guess I just wanted your opinions on whether you think that um, had she not had her case not been so public in the media, um, do you think that the Supreme Court would have ruled this way? Um, was any was there any public pressure? Do you think on the court that um, influenced their ruling? I've got to be careful with this one. <laughs> um, look, at the end of the day, judges are human beings, and as human beings, they're affected by human emotions like everybody else. 
So it, while they can try their best to remain legally neutral and independent, um, it would take a very, very, very strong character to, to try to rule without being influenced by their human emotions in any way. But I can't say anything beyond that. Um, that was really, that was, um, that was diplomatic and subtle. Um, I mean, I, I can sort of say that I think, um, I think 100% that if, if she had remained anonymous um, or if she had been able to, uh, um, you know, just kind of slip out um, of, of that camp like so many dozens of women have um, and, and would have made her way back. I mean, I think if she had even made her way to, to a consulate, um, she would have uh, had to, could have been able to avail herself of consular uh, assistance. Um, so I think, um, I think absolutely. You know, I think also um, then, you know, when one case becomes this, this public spectacle, and if, you know, if anyone's looked at the Daily Mail today, you'll sort of see, I mean, the way that she's sort of cast as though she's still some stealthy undercover, you know, jihadist, um, you know, posing in, in, in sunglasses, um, you know, then it can, can then, you know, facilitate doing it quietly um, for, for, for a number of others. Um, and, you know, I think even Anthony Lloyd, the journalist who um, so-called discovered her, you know, wrote this, you know, slightly self-reflective piece in, in GQ, sort of wondering <laughs> whether his, his um, interview with her had, had sealed her fate. Um, and I think... I think that's entirely the case. I mean, if any of you have read uh, Camilla Shanti's Home Fire, um, which very eerily uh, kind <laughs> of uh, um, you know imagined all of this uh, before before it happened. Of course, it's a novel, um, but I, I have my students read it. Um, you know, alongside media accounts and treatment of of, of women who who travel to Syria and what has happened to them. Um, you know, when when someone like this, when a case like this, you know, becomes. Uh, you know, part of the public consciousness around this issue, um, you know, it, it, I think it becomes, um, it's almost, it would be hard to see a government like this um, that sort of won the Brexit referendum uh, on the grounds that it did, you know, with the campaign that it did against, you know, the Muslim hordes, um, being able to maintain its, its base and that kind of ethos without doing this. So I see it very much in that context. Thank you, Kaz. Appreciate the, the question. Uh, I'm going to bring in Barik Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank for having me. Uh, and thank you, Fahad and Azadi, for... Uh, for a very lucid sort of discussion on, on this subject, this really tragic event today. Um, so I, I had a question, but I guess to preface it, I mean, I think to me what's, what's really interesting um, in what we're seeing today, uh, which both of you are, are alluding to, today was a very, it was a very sort of a racist event, right? A very public racist event, which sort of occurred um, you know, in front of all our eyes. And that's sort of the discussions which arose in social media. You know, everyone's sort of commenting on the two-tier citizenship and all the sort of racism that's, that, that's very experienced, is very embodied. Um, and to me, what's interesting is just how the performances of evading 
the racism of this event that we're seeing either by the media or politicians. Um, and so the question I have has to do with this notion of risk. Now we know risk itself is racialized. Um, so I guess the question, it might be geared a little bit more towards Fahad, but you know, I'd really like to hear Azad's thoughts as well. Um, you know, they did some sort of risk assessment. Um, and I was wondering if you can speak to the sort of risk assessments that are made, you know, potentially of Shamima Begum, right? So they're not going to go out and just say, we don't like Shamima because of who she is, you know, and where, and where she comes from, right? So they're going to encode that, that colorblindness um, into, a, into a language. And, you know, risk is one um, that we know is very, um, is very good for that. So, yeah, if you can speak to that, in terms of that sort of risk assessment, how Shamil, the language surrounding risk, you know, just disfavors someone like Shamil Begum potentially so much more than, let's say, a white serial killer, um, and how that plays out in terms of, you know, um, you know, the threat to the national order. Thank you. Uh, to the question, with Shamima's um, specific risk assessment, um, I obviously haven't seen it, so I can't comment and I can guess what was in it. Um, but a lot of the risk assessments, as I mentioned, are redacted, so you don't actually see much of what's, what's down there. I can comment from the cases I've worked on that they traveled to Syria and they aligned with a group. Um, and, you know, that's pretty much it. You don't get, you, you over like the course of some sort of disclosure, you might get uh, a couple of other things. Okay, maybe we accept they're involved in some sort of aid work, but they're also doing other things. And uh, they actually, I, I've, I've added that other part just to make sense of, of the, the, the redaction. It doesn't actually say that. It would just say, we accept they're involved in some sort of aid work. And then it's up to us to draw our conclusions. So, the the risk assessment, unfortunately, I can't really say about it, but um, I can speculate that if my client was uh, a white person of another faith, another religion, his or her traveling to, to Syria, um, his statement that he did he was doing aid work, it would probably not be seen with the perception um that he has been seen to, seen with so we often in trying to rebut the risk assessment we don't know what's in it we in in that particular case we were getting reports by um academics about why a young muslim might travel to syria to do aid work and looking at the role of syria in islamic uh, theology the needs of the ummah, the bonds of brotherhood. Um, and we have to try to provide ourselves with that white cover that, look, it's okay, look, we have a book here by Dr. David Knott who traveled to every war zone you can think of over the past 20 years um, and operated on senior ISIS people, you know, operated on one of bin Laden's wives, met Mullah Umar. And, and carried a rifle. <laughs> <laughs> I carried a rifle, exactly. Uh, but, but we have to use these things to try to um, demonstrate that this is what normal behavior is like for humanity.
humanitarian workers working in conflict zones. And you're not going to believe it because our client is a Muslim. But look, here are some people who are Christians and they're doing the same thing. But they are meeting with the Queen on their return and being honoured. Um, and, you know, you don't, you would never even suggest that he was involved. Uh, I mean, and not, not case is really, is really important because his book, he, he talks about the, the groups he was with. Uh, we have BBC journalists who are embedded with, um, with, with uh, different, uh, you know, prescribed organizations aligned with Al-Qaeda. And on their panorama documentary, you can see them in one of their cars surrounded by armed gunmen. Uh, we even had journalists who were saying we actually hired, um, you know, people from HTS and Al-Qaeda to protect us because it's the only way to get around. But all of that, I mean, why do we even have to do that? Because the automatic assumption is, well, your client is Muslim, so he must be up to something. And then we have to fish around for white covered to, to, to show that this is, this is normal behavior. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, it, there is a, you know, inherent... Uh, bias in in the assessment, I guess, that uh, a Muslim who travels to somewhere like Syria or Afghanistan must be up to no good. Um, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. I just wanted to, to chime in really quickly because, you know, after I wrote my book, I also, you know, did another sort of body of work on this issue. You know, I went to these camps, Roj and Al-Hol and, and Ainisa, the other camp before it was... Um, sort of overrun when when Turkey sort of invaded that part of the country. Um, you know, the, the idea that there's, um, you know, I mean, it's I guess it's not new to any of us that, you know, Islamist, jihadist violence, political violence is, is exceptionalized, right? It's in its category of its own and it, you know, doesn't follow, um, you know, it's irrational and, it, you know, can't sort of conform to, you know, other conventional criteria of risk, of course. Um, but it was really striking to me having conversations with security people uh, in Europe and in France and in Germany um, and security people uh, who actually deal technically with, with risk because they're responsible for it. They're not politicians, you know, would say, look, uh, Germany has 100 women in these camps. We know 13 of them are problematic. The others are, are okay. We, we can do screenings. You know, if, if risk is going to be, is going to have real criteria in the real world and there will be metrics and then we will kind of disaggregate these women and children based on that. We can do that. But clearly we've seen that, you know, that that, that doesn't happen at all because uh, I think really when it's, it's political risk and it becomes something that isn't actually um, about about hard security. So that's been uh, a real struggle in sort of doing any advocacy around this particular population is because, yeah, I mean, we're not having real conversations um, about about why why they're there and you know and and, and risk and, and security and metrics and these ideas of, of being able to screen them um, don't really go anywhere because I think I would say ultimately it's really not about that. Awesome. Can you permit me a quick follow-up question because I, I think I just want to catch up on that point of political risk very quickly. Is that all right? Yeah, of course, Eric. Um, so what what I find really fascinating about that and I just to, just to really you know just jump on to that point of political risk, as I mentioned. Because if we just think about the concept of rehabilitation, um, you know, and as Fahad was mentioning, you know, so if, if all of risk is sort of centralized to people's associations, right? Their sort of past associations, whoever they might've been associated with in the past. And I've been seeing this in some cases whereby, you know, people are demonized and vilified simply for having been associated with other people, 
right? Now, one of the issues that that, that, that brings up is the, the very concept of rehabilitation is, uh, is negated, uh, you know, from, from, from the very beginning. Um, and so th I think that's, I think there's a point here that somehow, to me, in the discourse isn't emphasized enough, right? Just the idea of, well, what, the, what is, where is the concept of rehabilitation then? Um, and, you know, I, I thought, I, I just wondering if either of you um, have anything to say to that. Zadeh, do you want to go first? Um, quickly, I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful point um, because uh, the, the idea that rehabilitation, um, you know, has their pathways and, and that there's ways to do it and that there's very sort of gender appropriate ways to do it is something that, that the British government really promotes around the world uh, and, it, and it, you know, criticizes countries um, that, that don't do that. Um, and, you know, and to kind of pick up on something I think that, that Fahid said earlier, you know, as, as, as grim as today has been, you know, at, at least, you know, there's something beyond the case of France, which is so impervious and, and kind of jaded to the idea of rehabilitation that it has, you know, been very willing to send its French nationals to Iraq just to, you know, just to be executed there and, and get the death penalty. Um, so, I mean, in terms of where where the UK is with rehabilitation, um, you know, and and we can have, you know, and I'm sure, you know, there's much to say about that whole process and these notions of, of, of you know, can it be, you know, is is there a empirical process? You know, can someone be de-radicalized? You know, what are the what are the mix for that? You know, and there was, a, you know, all those discussions. You know, I think was it last year about. Um, you know, should sentences be extended because, you know, people can pose and pretend that they're rehabilitated and then they continue to pose a danger to the public. Um, so although, um, you know, we are certainly up against all of that, you know, there are, at least I think we're not somewhere where, like France, where they um, are, I think, very cynical and, and don't even really countenance the idea of rehabilitation. They don't have programs designed for it. You know, their prisons are... Um, you know, not places where, um, and, and their kind of secular, you know, their obsessive secularism, you know, gets in the way of this as well, because they, they don't want to engage um, on, on any sort of cultural, religious, political grounds where, you know, some of that work might happen, however skeptical we might be of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just to sort of note that, um, you know, there are, there are countries where, you know, even these questions are, um, are, are viewed much more darkly for, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> Um, can I be blanket uh, with the UK? There's the issue of rehabilitation um, and how it deals with foreign nationals needs to be understood, first of all, um, because essentially what we're dealing with is a con uh, looking at anyone as a foreign national, as not, as not English, not, not white English. The way the UK deals it at the moment with immigration and foreign offenders is that if you get convicted of uh, a sentence of 12 months, or pretty potential wants to reduce it to six months now. If you get a 12 month sentence, you're automatically liable to deportation. Or if you're a persistent offender, so you commit a number of offences, and you may not, never even go to prison for any of those offences, but committed a number of smaller offences. So therefore, you are liable to be deported. Um, when it comes to rehabilitation, 
um, my experience and those of many other immigration lawyers is when it comes to the Home Office, they disregard rehabilitation. They have got orders from the very top that deportation cases, you fight all the way to the end. I mean, I'm dealing with a case next Friday of a young lady who was, was groomed um, and has the most tragic background. And all she got a, six, a three month sentence and they're seeking to deport her despite her being uh, suffering from suicide risks, uh, being a victim of grooming, being in care. So much baggage and so much trauma she suffered. Um, and they're trying to send her back to South Africa where she would be you know, dead within hours. And when it comes to rehabilitation, they just they disregard it. They just think, well, that shouldn't be given any weight because that's being a good citizen. That's, being, that's what you should be doing. So now, if, if that's how they're dealing with normal offenders, when it comes to politically, uh, political violence and politically motivated offences, you can see uh, how the, the balance is going to swing. And it gets worse with the judiciary. So uh, we've had cases where people are facing deportation for historic uh, terrorism offences, which are mainly freedom of speech offences, but they were down for glorification. And despite so much evidence and findings by the judiciary that they no longer pose a threat to the public and they are of reformed and rehabilitated. But nevertheless, what they did was bad enough so they should be excluded from the Refugee Convention. And, um, you know, they could be still deported once, as long as they're not going to be persecuted uh, in their country. So you, you, you rehabilitation here is, is, the way the judiciary is increasingly looking upon it is that this is something that you should be doing. It shouldn't be given any weight in terms of the balance about whether you should stay or, or, or not. The fact that you're you know, not committing a crime is nothing to be proud of. It's something that you should be doing from the outset. Um, within you, the, Europe, sort of the EU legislation, there was a, a stricter test when it came to deportation where you have to show that the person, you can't rely on a historic conviction, you have to show that the person is a genuine present and sufficiently serious threat to national security or to the, the public. Now with uh, Brexit, um, that test is going to be gone for any future offenders. So European nationals are going to be coming under that same, you know, really draconian piece of legislation. Um, so I, I'm a bit more pessimistic about the trajectory in the UK with rehabilitation. I think it's not not very soon before we will be adopting a, a French approach to the to the issue. Thank you both. Um, so. I, I promised uh, the speakers that this would be uh, an hour long. Uh, I know Azadi's got some um, childcare that she needs to, to take care of, um, but Fahad uh, is happy to continue for a little while longer. So just to remind everybody that this uh, conversation is about the Shuman Begum uh, judgment today. Um, Azadi, honestly, feel free to just slip out whenever you like um, uh, to, to take care of your kids, of course. Um, but yeah, for those, we've got a few questions that people are still hoping to ask. So we'll, we'll carry on for a while longer, um, uh, as long as people are interested. So next, I will invite in uh, Sheikh Nubayt. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakumullah khairan. Asim, you've put on uh, two great events this week, man. It's a phenomenal job, mashallah. Why so do I you do anything? I just ask the questions and everybody does the brilliance. And uh, but those that know Clubhouse, they know that, you know, the moderator plays an integral role. So jazakallah khair. Um, I have a question for each of the panelists. Um, I'll start with Fahad first, inshallah. 
Uh, Fahad, I had a preliminary look at um, some of the cases in, in citizenship deprivation for the UK. And I was wondering if you were able to identify any themes in terms of those cases, because uh, a lot of the times it just seems very selective. So there may be like a media bias. Sometimes there may be other things going on in the background, and then they choose to implement the citizenship deprivation. Um, that's the first part of the question. And part of the question is, in your personal opinion, do you think there ever is a time where uh, citizenship deprivation is justified in being used? Uh, my second question is for uh, Azada. Um, you know, I, I didn't know about your book until today, and I'm very fascinated in, in terms of uh, taking a look at it. So please excuse me if the question comes across as uh, ignorant. Um, but in my you know, very preliminary studies of, uh, of the CT space and the CVE space, I noticed earlier on there was a, a notion of, of pairing women and children together. And then later on, you had some academics and some analysts like Joanna Cook and Jessica Davis and others that said women and children should not be paired together because this denies the agency and the role that women have actually played in, in groups like Daesh. Um, so I was wondering, you know, has this being your specialization, do you feel that early on women were uh, portrayed as victims and they weren't uh, given, and I, I don't know what term to use, but their due right as, as perpetrators? Or do you find that there's a balance between the two? Or do you feel that um, this is an exaggerated statement that women really weren't um, victims at all, but all of them were perpetrators uh, in groups like Daesh? Thank you so much. Fahad, why don't you let Azada go first? Because I know she I was needs, just, uh, I was just about right. to say the same. All right, cool. Thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah, I, I, will, I will sign off after this question, uh, which, is, which is a great one. Um, Thank you. It's it's quite subtle, actually. Um, so I, I find it very interesting. I think that there is a, a um, well, where to start? Um, I think that women uh, women in ISIS uh, were. I think it's very. I think the depiction of them as simultaneously very passive. I mean, even the term you know jihadi brides that um, that was inflicted on us, you know, from the very beginning, kind of suggests that they're dupes or that they're submissive and that they just follow their husbands and, and families. And um, you know, in a in a caricature where you know women are part of a cultural system where they have so little agency, you know, would suggest that um, that that they are victims or that they were sort of manipulated or, or groomed if they were younger. Um, I think the, I think the push to, uh, to, to uphold this idea of agency, um, can be very carceral in the women and counterterrorism space, uh, because while, you know, certainly there has to be, uh, a, clear-minded, you know, understanding that women uh, were mobilized, that women mobilized themselves. And, and in lots of cases, you know, we're speaking about Tunisia at the beginning, you know, when several hundred women from a country get up and, and go to and travel to Syria, there's something going on politically in that country. And women are kind of are acting out politically and it has to be understood why they're making those choices. Um, so understanding, um, you know, the, the motivations and the kind of whatever the disempowerment or the fractures uh, or the, the political realities that, you know, compelled them to do such a thing, you know, does, of course, kind of take us down the pathway of, of seeing them as, as, as having agency. Um, 
I think the the push to um, kind of decouple women from children, um, though I, I find concerning in in, in some ways, uh, partly because also. I think it advances this possibility of separating uh, women from their children, uh, because often, you know, their family units uh, in this in these camps that we're also talking about, um, and it's actually been something that a lot of countries, France in particular, um, has has tried to do is is just to take the children, um, and and to separate them. Um, so so I think the the kind of Simultaneous, uh, it's sort of it's seemingly a quite feminist approach to sort of advance this idea that that women, you know, do have a great deal of agency and that they should be prosecuted alongside men. So of course, if we're going to, you know, if we politically want to uh, recognize that that women, you know, have political grievances too, then shouldn't they, therefore, they be, you know, prosecuted and assessed at the same time? So um, I, it's quite complex, though, and I think that's where um, kind of looking uh, at, at the sort of gendered experience of women and their particular vulnerabilities as women become so important because, you know, certainly, you know, women who uh, traveled to Syria and married there and, you know, their husbands died um, and who were then obliged to marry again or who were forced to marry again or were put in prison when they refused to marry again and experienced, you know, quite, you know, serious, you know, sexual exploitation, even if they had chosen to go uh, of their own volition, you know, at the beginning, then the picture becomes complicated because they've been brutalized by the same movement or group that that they joined willingly. Um, so that there there are many things um, there are many things at once. Um, so, in the report that I wrote on specifically uh, the population of these women, foreign women and children in these camps, you know, I called it women and children first because I guess more than anything, I wanted to make the case that they are not monolithic, that they are, you know, we can we can understand that there are very complex but very varying experiences. You know, there are women who uh, were girls when they were recruited and who've suffered a great deal uh, and been deeply victimized. And there are women who were older and who had different judgment and and perhaps made those choices and you know behaved in ways and, and did terrible things and we have to be able to uh, recognize and assess assess the complexity of that and sort of arriving at, at kind of conclusions that are that are a bit too narrow you know seemingly feminist but that take us down carceral pathways i think um we've got to be quite vigilant about and and i'll sign off with that thank you so much everyone um really thank you so questions uh, Zad, if I can just uh, allow quickly, what was the name of the report that you wrote before you leave? Uh, Women and Children First. Um, it's for Crisis Group, which is um, my my day job right now. Um, and I can um, uh, I can tweet it. Or I can um, kind of post it. I don't know if there's anywhere here where you, one can post things. Not here. Yeah, maybe not, it's not in your here. bio. You can put it in your bio, Azade. Okay, or, I'll put it in my bio I'll, for I'll, the next day if anyone wants to go and see it i'll, I'll, I'll dm you on twitter as well okay thank you so much as i really appreciate it Absolutely. thank you as take care bye everyone bye bye hello bye. Um, bye. yeah yeah um for attending uh this it, it always makes me really happy when the the people of knowledge come come to these events because there's usually a, an absence so that you're taking an interest in this is really, really uh, pleasing to me. Um, I can't remember your first question, so you'll have to repeat that again. But the second one, 
if is there any circumstances where I, where nationality deprivation is is justified, correct? That is correct. That was- yeah, I mean, as I see with citizenship, it's 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 a sense of belonging. It's an identity, and it, we have sufficient laws in place to prosecute the worst crimes. And I don't understand why someone should have to lose when you have laws in place to actually put them in prison. Um, we've got programs for rehabilitation. And the, the, it's, it's the problem is not just one person. Very often there's a family that goes with that. So once you someone's citizenship is revoked, the next step is to remove them from the country. So in essence, what you have is you have a, a double penalty system going in place. So you commit a crime and you're white, English, you, you do your time, you come back with your family. You're uh, brown, you, you're black, you lose your citizenship. Um, and then you're detained under immigration powers and then you're fighting deportation and away from your, your, your wife and kids, or your husband and kids. And you, you're just constantly penalized for something which if you were white and, and, and English, you, you wouldn't suffer. So I, I, I find that discriminatory application wrong. I find the double penalty wrong. Um, so I, I don't think that... Uh, I know some countries have it in for naturalized citizens for issues like treason and stuff. But the problem in the UK is that this power has expanded significantly. So the deprivation power is there for... Um, where not conducive to the public good for someone to 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 be British, and the Home Office policy on this identifies the type of cases it should be used for, and they mention um, terrorism, treason, um, serious organised crime, and what they call unacceptable behaviours. Now you can see how how broad that could be. I mean, spitting at someone uh, at a police officer, unacceptable behaviour. Does that mean you should lose your citizenship? And the way uh, um, uh, sort of uh, this has developed now is we have the people who are involved in the child abuse, uh, child sexual abuse rings in the north in Rochdale, um, who obviously warrant no sympathy for, for, for from anyone for their crimes. Um, they have been had their citizenship deprived under the under this policy that they were serious crimes and they were done in an organised fashion. Now, well, you know, no one sheds any tears uh, for them, but the principle is: why should a group of white English paedophiles who are involved in the sex ring just do their time and then get back, be allowed to carry on with their lives? Whereas, because these people come from a Asian background they have to have a second penalty of losing their citizenship and then being deported on the basis that, well, this was a serious crime and it's organized. And the public interest is that they should be deported because no one's going to really, no one's going to kick off about these guys. And, and and that's reality. No one did kick off about it because it's it's very hard to to engender any sort of sympathy for them. It's actually easier to engender sympathy for Shamim Begum than, than, than those type of people. But the problem is where this is going. We had last year before the pandemic, the major talking point in London was knife crime. And a lot of the, the, the crimes um, that were happening were were within the black community. Some were from Somali, some were Afghans, some were uh, Asians, uh, some were Turkish. 
the point being is that they came from an ethnic background. Now, the public mood is very, very against, uh, you know, the perpetrators and they should be basically brought to justice, people that locked them up for life. Now, if the mood swings so much in that direction and the government thinks that, well, you know what, this is serious crime, it's organised because it's gang violence, we should then um, deprive these people of their citizenship because they are ethnically, they're from another country and they can get that nationality and there'll be little public outcry. So it's a slippery slope where we're going with this. You know, it started off at a very high threshold, national security treason, and, and now we're, we're dealing with paedophiles and next is going to be normal criminal gangs. And these are kids who were born and raised here, have been their whole life. Why should they lose their citizenship in that way? So yes, my... my, my the, that's a long answer. The short answer is, is no. Uh, I don't see any circumstances when you have s- sufficient legislation in place to deal with their crimes. Could you repeat your first question? Jazakallah Karva, that was a great answer. Um, my first question was uh, just a cursory look on, on the cases of uh, citizenship de- deprivation. I found the implementation of, of the law very selective. So you had, you know, similar crimes committed by other individuals, yet it wasn't implemented. And in a case like Shamima, it definitely is. So I was wondering, in, in your experience in law, have you found a reoccurring theme, perhaps, uh, when it is implemented? And just your thoughts on that. Um, uh, I'm not. I'm not sure what, what examples you're referring to, but uh, uh, most of the, the the current cases that are in place. Um, actually, let me start again. Uh, the starting point is it's very arbitrary. Because just like we mentioned, Jack Letts and Shamima were not deprived in 2017 when 104 others were, many of whom were linked to Syria. Um, and they decided not to deprive them, but then they did deprive them when it suited the political climate. Um, others have returned from Syria and been, you know, people who were identified as fighters with ISIS, not just, you know, the, the brides, but fighters. And they've been... Um, you know, prosecuted, some have been just monitored and let go. So it is very, very arbitrary. It also depends on, on, on the climate. So we had we have people who went to fight against Gaddafi um, who didn't lose their citizenship uh, because that was a war that the Brits were supporting and there's probably a lot would come out in those cases about, um, sorry, they didn't have their citizenship taken away because a lot would come out about probably that the Brits were training them um, at the time. So it would be quite embarrassing. So I, I think it, it, all, it is very, very politicized. Um, in this country, we went through a phase where anyone opposed to Gaddafi, going back to the Libyan example, um, they were initially granted asylum. Then when Tony Blair had his great you know, peace meeting with Gaddafi in the desert uh, after 7-7 happened, suddenly all those very same people were being prosecuted, were being picked up, detained, uh, put under control orders, and attempts were made to deport them to the country from which they'd been granted asylum, um, from, to the same man who they, they, they accepted would, would persecute them. And then when the mood changed again, these same people voluntarily went back to fight Gaddafi and were, in fact, when David Cameron arrived, they were part of his bodyguard entourage protecting him. So... Yeah, it, it's it's all very, very politicized. Um, the common example people bring up as well is, well, if fighting is an issue, you have people who went and fought with the Kurds against ISIS. Um, why aren't are they deprived? You have people who go and fight uh, in, Israel, in Israel with the IDF and are 
possibly involved in war crimes and crimes against humanity. And they're not even they're celebrated when they come home. Um, they don't lose their citizenship, although they do have a second citizenship, clearly. So, yeah, there, there, there's definitely some level of, of, of duplicity with this. Thank you so much. I, I, th- I guess what I'll just say uh, to add to what Fahad said more succinctly, perhaps, uh, because, you know, he's a lawyer. I think he has to be a little bit more careful about what he says. <laughs> uh, I, I really don't care. It's a racist, two, you know, kind of uh, two-tier system. That's, that is what we are dealing with. Then we shouldn't um, kind of be careful at all about saying that. I think it's, it's very obvious um, to most people that there are two different sets of rules that are being applied um, to Muslims and to everyone else, and to black people and everyone else, you know? Yeah, I mean, you can see that that's easy to say. I have no, no, no truck saying that. Um, <laughs> I think the issue is, is, is when it comes to even within the Muslim community, how they prosecute it and how they apply the policy, it is politicized. So right. some, some are let back, some are not let back. Uh, some are useful to them, some are useful idiots. Um, so it really all depends on, on, on what dates the state can get out of it for the state. It's not, yeah. it's not based on principle. Yeah, and I think at another time, like even for us as Muslims, we, we need to at, at some point have a, a conversation, perhaps here, perhaps somewhere else, about even the way in which we describe citizenship as being a um, a moral good in and of itself. Like somehow um, that that specific you know kind of nationalist citizenship somehow conveys us a, a a moral goodness that um that others are denied and so you know that's a completely different conversation it's it's in a, a different space but i hope that you know a few of us can get together at some point and maybe think some of the the contours of that through uh Said has been waiting very patiently to ask a question so i'm going to invite him to come in now inshallah Said. Assalamualaikum, uh, Aslim. Uh, wonderful to uh, speak to you again. I think we were together three years ago at the IHRC conference uh, in okay, London. Uh, so, if you'll permit me, this might be a segue to that uh, that next conversation. Sure. Um, if you if you're taking a look at, for example, the treatment of or the mistreatment of Maher Arar, where really there was almost a uh, a collusion between the United States and Canada in the ineffectiveness of Canada to really lodge enough of a objection to the United States sending him to Syria um, 20 years ago to be essentially tortured before he was let go. And it seems as though with, uh, with Shamima Begin's, uh, Begum's rather tragic case, we're on a tra- trajectory here in the West whereby citizenship is actually now no longer a sacred cow. It is being contested. Uh, something which I never thought here in the United States I would hear, but an actual debate about birthright citizenship now uh, being debated. It was occurring under the Trump administration. I don't think it will it will uh, go away. But the idea that the 14th Amendment protection may no longer necessarily be presumed, uh, something a bit closer to what you're describing in the UK, where uh, citizens who are not part of the dominant power demographic, shall we say, are essentially no better off than green card holders or permanent residents. So I'm wondering then, where do we go from the Shamima Begum case as far as assessing what is happening in the West and planning strategies uh, more long term? 
for what does this really mean to the very concept of citizenship and for those groups like ourselves who will be most affected by it. So I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Thank you. Um, thank you, Said. There's been a concerted effort to downgrade um, the, the the value of citizenship by the Home Secretary in this country, by successive Home Secretaries. And they have this mantra that citizenship is a privilege, not a right. Um, and with it become, become certain you know, responsibilities. So it, it, it did, that didn't happen accidentally. It didn't happen overnight. It was, it, it's, it's policy that's been deliberately designed to do that. Um, and you, even going beyond the actual value of citizenship, I, I think it's something deeper. So we have, we have kids who are born in, and have lived their entire lives here who aren't technically citizens, but everything about them is British and their identity, their belonging, their, their never step foot outside the country. Um, and to me, those kids are just as British as, as anyone else. But the fact that they lack an identity document, and which might take them many, many years to get, um, if they even get it, doesn't take away from that sense of citizenship. And for, for me, the, the conversation is better, is, is, is not to... It, it, it's almost, I, I'm, in a way, it's good that they've sort of put this concept on the piece of itself, that it's a piece of paper. But the essence of citizenship is, is something far greater and far deeper. And I think that's the discussion we need to be having, is does it really matter if you have that, you know, red or actually blue passport now? Um, or is it the fact that you belong to this country something far to look at? So, um yeah, I think there's, I mean, that's right now, but there definitely needs to be some sort of discussions about how to take that forward and, and, and to, you know, open up that debate. Because as we saw with Windrush, and as we will inevitably see with the three million uh, European nationals in the country who down the line will be undocumented and will face similar problems, um, you know, pieces of paper, pieces of paper. It doesn't take away from your identity or your, or your sense of belonging to the country that is your country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to bring uh, Kerry in in a second, inshallah. But you know, just to, just to say on that that, it's something that I guess we've always heard about. You know, in terms of our parents' generation, maybe there were always a lot of them thinking about um, their own place and space in these countries many of them sending money back home to build property always with this kind of assumption that ultimately i'm going back home i'm here for a temporary period um for those in my generation and and i think definitely those younger than me they had so many assumptions about what it means to live as 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 a citizen as a person with full inalienable rights in the society that there is a uh, a very very strange fracturing going on where at, on the one side you're kind of rejecting an older generation's discourse around going home because this is home your um your gesticulation your intonation like everything your humor like all of the things that make you in so many ways who you are are so tied to the cultural norms of your neighbors and the society around you. And yet at the same time, the state structurally is sending you the opposite message, saying that your 
your presence here is conditional um, based on you um, melding yourself within you know the type of person that we want one that is a producer one that is able to meet the needs of capitalism the one who is productive for society um and yeah i think that 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 brings all sorts of kind of contradictions so for the first time i hear people younger than me talking about kind of uh keeping an eye eastwards um, which is interesting it's fascinating and i think it's something that we have to to really think about Sorry, I know, Kerry, you've been waiting a while, so I'm going to invite you in as well now, please. Thank you, Saeed, again, for your, your question. Thank you. Jazakallah, Um So I, I missed some of the conversation, so maybe this has been covered. But um, I wanted to ask, especially, Ahad, with the ruling that the Supreme Court brings down, which is basically that national security overrules and, and overrides the right to a fair trial and other things. What are the, what are the, um, uh, so what are the principles that this is laying down and how could this affect like other areas of law? For example, TPIMs, TPIMs are looking to be brought, uh, made stricter, basically turned exactly back into control orders and other parts of a uh, counter terrorism legislation where now they've got this supreme court ruling that says that fair trials and all of these principles can be overridden by national security so uh yeah what 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 issues does that create as a as a, a premise that's now set down in assalamualaikum uh Kerry. yeah um for the question we we, we did put Kaleem, sorry. Your up is Kerry on your screen, though. <laughs> um, we did touch on this earlier on. Because um, you two <laughs> We did touch on this earlier on. Um, but I think the, the, the short answer really is it's actually quite devastating because it's the Supreme Court essentially saying that we need to give deference to the Secretary of State uh, in matters of national security um, and we should trust her judgment and we should trust the intelligence agencies when they provide the material that, you know, because she's, Parliament has given her that responsibility and she, you know, she will exercise that. Um, and I am fearful of how this is going to impact TPIMS and, and anything else would, would prevent with anything. You have almost the sec security services and the Secretary of State being carte blanche um, and obviously the, the the legal problem with that is that it's sort of you know completely undermines the separation of powers doctrine where the judiciary is meant to hold the executives to account and here you're saying well regardless of what the evidence is because we're not even going to look at it but we should just give deference to what the secretary of state says so yeah it it, it is deeply problematic okay thank you um so yeah there's no more questions that uh i have in the in the room and so we have been going for almost two hours now i'm gonna i think bring this uh to a close but just to you know say thank you to fahad um who stayed with us all this time and of course azade who had to leave but really you know stayed for most of it and both of them who were uh, really wonderful in providing their expertise um from two very very different perspectives you know azade kind of bringing her journalistic and ethnographic understanding of the motivations and the contexts that 
have built this travel of these young women and children um, towards ISIS territory and further helping us to navigate and understand the complexity of the legal regime that we have uh, in the UK, especially when it comes to, to citizenship deprivation. I, I, you know, and just reflecting a little bit on um, what both of them were saying, I do think that there is a much larger conversation that we need to have about how we interact and make demands of the state in relation to um, the precariousness of our position. Because the, the instinct is to go into some kind of self-preservation survival mode where you can take what you're given. You know, just give us, give us what, what, you know, what you can and we'll be happy with that as long as I'm okay. But I feel that so much of those types of tactics, especially from an older generation of community leaders, unfortunately has embedded a whole mechanism, a whole structure of repression against us that's being built on constantly. So that as soon as they gain ground in one place where they take our rights away, then they don't just stop there, they build on that then. And so the architecture is constantly increasing in size and its ubiquity, uh, which is leaving a lot of young people, especially feeling very, very frightened about the world that they're growing up in. And so I think that there is a responsibility on us to, to think much of this through very carefully in terms of how we want to respond and how forceful we want to be in terms of protecting these rights. And, and and when I'm talking about rights, I'm not talking about, oh, like I need to be British and I need to have this um, citizenship for myself, but how we use that as a platform for protecting others too, not just limiting it to ourselves. So I pray that Allah you know, kind of guides us all to what is best and you know, helps protect those who are most vulnerable and who are, I mean, um, you know, feeling feeling the violence of the state at all times. And and my my thanks to all of you for being part of this conversation. And I hope you'll join us again um, next next Friday at eight p.m. GMT, where we'll be talking with many of the contributors to the book I Refuse to Condemn. So I look forward to having that conversation. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Could I just could I just add yes, one thing? Yeah, yeah. If, 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 if everybody in this group does one thing today is to order Azadi's book and read it because the understanding um, of what these women have gone through, what drove them to, to go to Syria, not many people have that. And that is that nuance that, that everyone requires. And it is one of the, probably one of the best books I read in the last few years. So yeah, if, I encourage you, if you're going to do any one thing to help um, in this cause is just the first thing you can do is go read that book. Absolutely. I 100% endorse that. It's an amazing book. Thank you, Fahad, for, for recommending that. Okay, everybody, take okay. care. Inshallah. Thank you, Austin. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Assalamu alaikum.